0: This morning I want to spend as much time as possible on the second part of your outlines, the the practical uh, applications, but I do want to finish off this prophecy in all of its details. We've spent three weeks on this because this is a key, key passage that um, uh, a pessimistic variety of amillennials, not all amillennials, and that premillennials have used to try to say postmillennialism is impossible. Uh, what we are destined for in the future is a time uh, increasingly over the 2,000 years of history, increasingly of more and more persecution and uh, how it really destroys the postmillennial system. And we've spent more time on this because I wanted you to see how all of the details of this passage uh, far from disproving Uh, an optimistic uh, outlook for the future and the victory of Christ's kingdom actually exactly demonstrate that. And uh, what I want to do quickly is give a little bit of overview, but first of all, let me remind you of one of the principles uh, that we saw before, that each of the symbols in this chapter has both an individual and a corporate um, uh, uh, reference. Uh, For example, take a look at verse 17. It says, Those great beasts, which are four, are four kings which arise from the earth, and so they refer to four individual kings, but I want you to look at verse 23, and uh, we'll see in verse 23 that they also represent the kingdom as a whole. There's a corporate dimension to those symbols. It says in verse uh, 23, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms. And uh, as we'll see in a moment, that description of the kingdom covers 200 years of history, at least 200 years of history, and not just the first king who was in there. Same is true of the heads of the beasts. If you keep this principle in mind, a lot of the mystery in the passage just evaporates completely. Uh, The heads, uh, the four heads of the uh, Greek Empire represent not just the first four generals who split the empire, but the dynasties that flowed from. Uh, those uh, four generals. Same is true of the horns on the head. The period of the ten horns uh, covers uh, 204 years of history. There was no one king who lasted during that whole period of time, but at any given period of history, uh, there were ten individual kings who ruled over ten uh, provinces uh, during that period. And uh, we'll be seeing how the little horn uh, on the fourth beast is Caesar Augustus. And uh we'll be seeing how the little horn represents not just Caesar Augustus but the emperors that flowed from him. He was the one who took the destroyed the Republic of Rome uh, turned it from a republic into being uh, an empire, and uh, we'll see how it goes through all those emperors leading up to that. Now with that as a background, uh, let's go through from verse um four and following. Uh, what the four beasts represented, just to quickly remind you, in verse 4, it uh, refers to a winged lion representing not only Nebuchadnezzar, but representing the kingdom of Babylon. And in verse 5, we have the uh, the lopsided bear who is higher on one side than on the other, got longer legs on one side, representing Medo-Persia with the Persians being more dominant. And then in verse 6, we saw that the winged leopard represented Alexander the Great's incredibly speedy conquest on behalf of Greece. So it represents the Greek empire. And then the unusual beast uh, in verse uh, 7 and 8 represents Rome. Now, it was during the time of that fourth beast, Rome, and after the little horn grows. It can't be some time before. It has to be after the little horn grows, Christ comes in his kingdom, and he begins the process of judging and taming uh, the various bestial empires. If you look at verse 13, uh, just one of the time indicators that we saw, that this occurred not at the end of time, as many people try to say. Many people have a resurrected Roman empire, some kind of a fifth empire, which verse 17 denies. The whole chapter is talking about four empires, and during the time of the fourth one, the Uh, the kingdom of Christ being established but in verse 13 it says I was watching in the night visions and behold one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven he came to the ancient of days notice that preposition that's not referring to the second coming when the Son comes from the ancient of days to earth this is speaking of him coming to the ancient of days remember when He left the apostles. He disappeared out of sight on the clouds of heaven uh, to uh, his throne. And they brought him near before him. Then, not 2,000 years later, but then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. And so that's a quick overview of where we have been so far there's four bestial tyrannical uh, kingdoms, one right after another, and during the fourth one, Christ establishes his kingdom. Now, verse 12, just to remind you there, uh, indicates that Christ did not replace the bestial kingdoms of this world overnight. There's a gradual leavening process in this world as the kingdom of heaven acts as leaven in this world. It says, as for the rest of the beasts, uh They had their dominion taken away, and we saw that was taken away in the resurrection and ascension of Christ. Christ says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So legally, Christ got all of the kingdoms of the world. Hebrews says they're all put under Christ, but then Hebrews goes on to say, but we do not yet see all things put under him. They've been given to him, but there's a process. And so it says, as for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So we shouldn't be surprised by the presence of bestial kingdoms during the past 2,000 years. Uh, Christ gradually over time uh, increases and advances uh, his kingdom. Now in verses 15 through 22, Daniel asks the angel to interpret some of the different symbols that are in that vision, and we're going to pick up at verse 23 where the angel does exactly that. Angel speaking, Thus he said, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, trample it, and break it in pieces. Now, on the margin of my Bible, I've got written in there that Rome started at 600 B.C., uh, but it was not at that point uh, conquering the earth. At a later period of history, it began its advance of conquering nation after nation, And the whole concept of um, Rome being one of the most ruthless of the nations toward those who opposed it, very well documented in any of the history books you might look at. And the fact that the Roman government was totally different from any other form of government, uh, very well documented as well. It was a very strange mixture of senatorial, equestrian, patrician, and plebeian rule. Uh, Very odd uh, form of government. It started off as a republic in which all of the authority for the provinces rested in the Senate. There were checks and balances, but Rome turned from being just a republic to being an empire, and the next verses describe that to a T. And the first phrase, really, in verse 24 is a transition before they became a republic. Well, it includes there being a republic as well, because there were ten provinces during that time. But it says, the ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom. Notice it says they shall arise from the kingdom. That implies the kingdom has been around before the ten horns got there, right? So they arise within the kingdom. Rome did not start off with ten provinces, but over time it grew into a a kingdom that had ten provinces with ten people ruling over it. So if we're going to be interpreting this properly, we've got to look at a period in Roman history when there was a division of Ten regions governed by ten individual kings. If you get too late in Roman history, you've got way too many provinces. If you get too early in Roman history, you have too few uh, uh, provinces. And I pored over many secular uh, history books on Rome on this because I wanted to get, make sure all of the details fit. This is one of the most confusing passages when you look at the commentators Uh, many different viewpoints and some people just throw up their hands and say "Uh, there isn't any historical fulfillment this has got to be something uh, that's in the future but the history books really do talk about uh, periods and so if you if you really fit take account of every word there I'm a detailed person you'll see how this really fits together for example the most provinces that Rome ever had up until the reign of Sulla was six six provinces So it can't be before 138 B.C. I've got in my margin um, 138 in Sulla's, the the earliest point that the Ten Horns could be talking about uh, as a starting point, but there's nothing in Sulla's reign that fits three provinces being uprooted and turned into one province under one king. Uh, That has to wait to a, a later period of time. His was the reign. It was from 138 B.C. to 78 B.C. when uh, it turned into ten provinces uh, governed by ten uh, governors. And it was after that that the change occurs, and that's what verse 24 goes on to say. It says, And another shall arise after them. So some period of time after the ten provinces and the ten governors have been established as a part of the Roman government, this other person arises and, and you can put in your margins there if you like, this is Octavian sometimes known as Caesar Augustus uh, in, the, in the New Testament he's referred to as uh, Caesar Augustus, he's the one that's credited with ending the Republic and beginning uh, the Empire and so if the ten horns come somewhere between 138 B.C. and 78 B.C. Uh, that's uh, during the time of Sulla uh, Octavian fits he's one who arose after that establishment. Verse 24 goes on. It says, He shall be different from the first ones. Uh, Octavian, or Caesar Augustus, uh, however you want to uh, label him, was different from the governors that he displaced uh, in a number of different ways, but especially three. Uh, he ruled the entire empire, they only ruled provinces. So there was a jurisdictional difference. Uh, There was also a difference with respect to his power. There was a difference with regard to his authority. They were all under authority. He was not under any authority. He was completely uh, authoritarian. Um, Octavian was not content to have the restrained power that Julius Caesar has. Verse 24 continues, it ends by saying, and shall subdue three kings. We're giving you just a little bit of background history on this. Not long after destroying Libidus and uh, Mark Antony, who were co-regents with him, there was a triumvirate there, uh, what happened is he asserted his power, he destroyed those two, and he asserted his power in a symbolic way by taking away three provinces from the Senate. He took away Spain, Gaul, and Syria. And so the three kings or governors subdued in verse 24, the kings of Spain, Gaul, and Syria. Now, why was all of this recorded in the scripture? You know, it seems like it's got to be pretty significant. This was an enormously significant uh, move in Rome's history because for the first time in Roman history, the separation between powers uh, was breached, and he gained authority over areas, over governments, that the Senate, previous to this, had only had authority in so up to this time, there's 10 provinces. Then when he takes those three provinces and turns them into one province under himself, it goes down to eight provinces. By the end of his reign, 14 AD, uh, it's back up to 10 provinces again, but we'll look at some of the, uh, the reasons for that. In fact, maybe I could mention briefly, if you're studying Revelation 17, you'll see uh, the same fourth beast mentioned, and it mentions that there are 10 kings over ten provinces again, ten imperial provinces. The difference being, here he only has, under the emperor, three provinces that are under his control. There, every province, by the time you get to Nero, the emperors had gained such authority that the Senate didn't have any authority over the provinces. In Revelation 17, every one of those kings willingly, completely, and directly were submitted to the emperor. Okay, so that's the kind of sequence that we have here. Now, do I need to review where we've been over those verses, or is that pretty clear? We'll just quickly, really quickly uh, go over that again. In, um, in verse 24, you've got the development of the. Verse 23 is the, the kingdom of Rome prior to its being an empire. Uh, then the beginning of the verse 24 talks about the establishment of ten provinces with ten kings. And it says, another shall arise after them. That's uh, Octavian, who takes his throne in 27 B.C. He shall be different from the first ones, that's jurisdictionally and in terms of power, in terms of his uh, not having any authority over him. And he shall subdue three kings, that's uh, Spain, Gaul, and Syria. Now, verse 25 describes the character, the evil tyrannical character Of that brand new institution of emperor that started with Octavian, continued to Tiberius, Caligula, uh, Claudius, and Nero. And all of those totally unrestrained. First time in Roman history. And uh, so even though verse 25 uh, describes Octavian very well, it describes all of those emperors. Look at the first phrase. It says, he shall speak pompous words against the Most High. Did that historically happen? Yes, it did. Octavian was the first ruler to claim to be divine. And uh, all of the other emperors, uh, Tiberius all the way through to Nero, claimed to be divine as well. I've got several uh, photocopied pictures here of different uh, coins uh, that I uh, got out of some of the coin books, uh, each of which declares one Caesar or another to be divine, And it started with Octavian. Let me give you a few of the ones minted by Caesar Augustus. Here's a quote on a coin. It says, The divine Augustus, father of the people. Here's another one. Quote, The only name given by which men can be saved. Unquote. Can you see how Peter's words in the book of Acts were really treason because he was directly contradicting something the people had in their hands, their coins where Caesar declared to be the only name uh, by which men could be saved. And he says, no, the name of Jesus Christ is the only name under heaven given among men by which men can be saved. Now, was that coin offering up pompous words against the Most High? Absolutely, it was. Here's another coin. It says God on it, referring to Augustus. Another has Pontifex Maximus, or high priest. Another has August God, or God worthy of reverence. Uh, Edith uh, Stauffer in her book describes uh, this period of time in these words, quote, Salvation is to be found in none other save Augustus, and there is none other name given to men in which they can be saved. From that point on, the emperor always claimed divinity to himself and was on a constant basis offering up blasphemy against the Most High. And for those who say that uh, really there is no past reference Uh, that there's got to be some future antichrist and they stick a a 15 to 2,000 year gap between these verses, I think you can see this is a far more natural way of reading the text. Well, verse 25 goes on to say, and shall persecute the saints of the Most High. Now, if he's putting things like that on his coins, you can see where the Jews would get in trouble, the godly uh, 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 believers Uh, prior to the time of Christ, would have constantly been in conflict with Caesar. Any who resisted uh, Augustus and later emperors were persecuted. Now, what happened, and and many commentators point this out, is that because of the constant trouble with Christians and the persecution that came there, but because Israel was such a sore spot in the sight of Rome... Rome gave an exemption to Israel. The only country in the empire that had that exemption, they did not have to worship Augustus if they would pray for Augustus in the temple. And so they got a reprieve, which was beautifully laying the groundwork for the spread of the gospel uh, in the New Testament. But, you know, Augustus' declaration of divinity was what enabled Nero later on to throw Christians to the lions. It was what enabled the next uh, emperor after Augustus, Tiberius, to uh, to persecute uh, Christians. Modern liberals look back on that time, you know, with nostalgia, and they think of that as being an enlightened time. If you read Suetonius and Tacitus, who were contemporary pagan historians, they think of it as an awful time of tyranny. Let me read you one example from the Roman historian Suetonius. Describing Tiberius, he says, quote, "Not a day passed without an execution, not even days that were sacred and holy. for he put some to death even on New Year's Day. Many were accused and condemned with their children and even by their children. The relatives and victims were forbidden to mourn for them. The word of no informer was doubted, and of course, you know the cruel oppression that Nero gave uh, in later history. Now, the emperors not only sought to persecute christians verse twenty five was on to say." "...and shall intend to change times and law. Now, the Hellenization and the Romanization of the empire was so complete that even the feisty Jews were far more uh, influenced by, by Rome than they were many times willing to admit. They had a revisionist history many times. And uh, we'll be seeing in a moment, we'll get back to that, about uh, how he uh, sought to change holidays that uh, gave what he considered to be a wrong uh, view of history... And in other ways, sought to change times and laws. Verse 25 Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. Now, what Augustus authorized later came to its full fruit in Nero. And that phrase there, some people take it as symbolical because they don't see uh, anything in Augustus's time that would be literal. In Nero's, you have it. But remember, the little horn represents not just Augustus, but all of the uh, line of five emperors that flowed from him. Now, the the phrase "times" plural, probably refers to two years, time to one year, and half a time to half a year. Now, if that's true, if that's correct, then it either refers to the three-and-a-half-year persecution against Christians. Exactly, three-and-a-half years uh, that uh, they were persecuted under Nero from 64 to 68 A.D., or to the three-and-a-half-year war against Jerusalem. But I don't think it's Jerusalem. Here it's talking about the saints themselves being persecuted. And then comes his concluding statement in verses 26 through 27. We spent a great deal of time on that last week, talking about the total victory that Christ would achieve in history. Now, that's the interpretation. Let's get on to the application of uh, what this means to us. Take a look at verse 15. This indicates Daniel was troubled. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. Why was he troubled? You could say, in a sense, that he had a comfy job, and and, uh, uh, the trouble, you know, in a sense, was quite a ways from him. Uh, There was going to be eventual victory that the Lord was going to bring in the future. Why would he be troubled about this? Well, I believe that he was troubled because he identified with God's people and it grieved him to realize God's people were going to be warred against in verse 21. They were going to suffer in verse 25. They were going to see firsthand the horrible tyranny that verse 7 describes. And if we are not troubled when we see the persecuted Christians in other countries, when we see people being beheaded in Saudi Arabia, when we see a price being put on people who make profession of faith in Egypt and in Pakistan and other countries like that, if we are not troubled, when we see the trouble other Christians are in, then I think there is something terribly wrong with the state of our Christianity. This is a month in which we are especially remembering the persecuted uh, around the world, and I think it needs to bother us. Daniel did not allow uh, the the post-millennial optimistic eschatology that God had given to him to inure him to the pain and the suffering that people would gain in order to achieve the goal that God had set before them. You see, to be guaranteed victory does not mean soldiers will not suffer, that they will not die in the advancing of God's kingdom. You look at the analogy of the conquering of Canaan. It had already been given to them. but many people did die in the process of laying that down. And I think we tend to be so Amerocentric, You know, if we don't see things growing in America, we think the kingdom's not growing anywhere. It's been growing faster around the world than any period of time. But at the same time, we're so Amerocentric that if everything's going hunky-dory here, uh, it just doesn't trouble us about there being persecution around the world. And I think we need to be world Christians like Daniel was, having a perspective and a heart for what is happening to the church worldwide and being pained when we see other Christians going through trouble. A second application was that Daniel was interested in the future. He was interested in eschatology. Now, we may find eschatology boring, or we may find it something that's difficult to understand. I'll have to admit, this is probably the most difficult passage I've had to interpret, because I sure didn't get a lot of help from the commentaries. But we need to have the kind of interest that Daniel had. In verse 16, it says, I came near to one of those who stood by and asked him the truth of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. And you might have to do exactly the same thing. You might say, hey, I don't know, but you're willing to read books. You're willing to go to teachers who do understand the passage. But you've got to be interested in the future because God was interested uh, in the future. Uh, I'm going to skip down to point E. We shouldn't study the future only if the future is positive and happy. Okay? Um... Uh, We should be interested, even if it is gloomy. In verses 19 through 20, in spite of the fact that that fourth beast was scary stuff, Daniel wanted to know the specific details about that fourth beast in all of the tyranny and the uh, horrible uh, thing, the persecution that he was bringing. Why? He wanted to be prepared, and he wanted God's people to be prepared uh, for that kind of a tyranny uh, as well. And I think there is a tendency amongst Christians to not want to be told about bad things about the future. They don't want to be told that persecution could arise in America or that we could have tough economic times. We tend to filter out the bad and just filter in the good. And Proverbs says that's foolish. It says a prudent man foresees evil and hides himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. Now, that doesn't mean we have to go all the way with scary-gary, you know, on what's going to happen in the future, but we shouldn't be blind to the future. There could be difficult times that come up. Point C uh, says we should never underestimate the power of tyrannical governments. Uh, Christians have naively done exactly that, I think, in our own time. I simply do not think American Christians are prepared for persecution should it arise. And I pray it won't arise, but should it arise in the next two Uh, To five years. If you skip down to point G, um, you know we have the the tendency to think, "Oh, persecution—that's something that happens in other countries. It won't happen here." But look down at point G, and I'm going to outline for you some things that Satan has always done in countries where there has been a revolution from freedom into tyranny, just like happened in Babylon, where there were much more freedoms, but there was a centralized government when when Nebuchadnezzar took over, or when Alexander the Great took over Greece, or when Octavian took over uh, Rome, there was a centralization uh, of government. And uh, as we see more and more over the past hundred years, more and more centralization of government in in America, I think that tyranny is inevitable, unless that is reversed. It is inevitable. It's always happened in history uh, this way. And as we go through this verse, I want you to ask yourself if America has been gearing up for the change to tyranny that took place in Rome. First phrase in verse 25 says, he shall speak pompous words against the most high. One of the first things that governments do is verbal assault, Uh, verbal assaults against uh, uh godly principles, against Christianity, against uh, any religion for that matter that does not servilely submit to Rome. And this prepares people for later onslaught. See, Octavius did something that was radical in his day, but when Octavius got away with his pompous words, he was not rebuked by the Senate, uh, the aristocrats, the plebeians, nobody held him to account. They were softened up over time by this it freed him up to begin to bring the worst tyrannies later on. And I believe that there has been a continuing stream of assaults against the Most High God in America in our newspapers, on the TV, uh, in our courts. There have been people who have even been cited in court for contempt of court for citing Scripture. Um, A politician may not say out loud that he is divine today. I've not heard of any that have done that. But if the White House and the Congress and the courts act as if there is no God or no authority over them, as if there is no law to which they are accountable, they are indeed acting just as pompously as Octavian was. See, what Octavian did was not constitutional in Rome. He was arrogating to himself powers that he did not have. And what to me is such a sad state of affairs in America is that the increasing uh, tyranny, the throwing of God out of the schools and the throwing of the Ten Commandments out of the, the courts and in any area that the government has its hands in has not been resisted by anybody. It's not been resisted by Congress. It doesn't seem like it's been resisted uh, anywhere. Octavian did not have the authority to do what he was doing any more than the White House or the Congress have the, the authority to do some of the unconstitutional things they are doing right now, but they're getting away for, uh, with it. And to me, this is a sign of a parallel, the passivity of the people back then and the passivity of the people right now. It's, it, it, it's a perfect setting for tyranny to happen. Next two phrases in verse 25 say, shall persecute the saints of the Most High and shall intend to change times and law." Now, according to historian Stephen uh, Wilkins, is it Steve Wilkins? Steve, yeah, Steve Wilkins, any time there's been an unbelieving revolution in history, the three things mentioned in that phrase have always, without any fail, always have been present. And the three things are the persecution of outspoken Christians, and for that matter, anybody who's outspoken against a tyranny, rewriting of history, and thirdly, changing of the law. Now, we might feel like we have not been experiencing persecution in our time, and that could be debated uh, back and forth. But you look at some of the countries where those kind of revolutions have actually happened, and Nazi Germany, uh, China, Cuba, uh, uh, Russia, Korea, Nicaragua, those uh, six countries as examples, immediately there was a rounding up of Christians who were outspokenly opposed to that kind of tyranny, automatically they were executed. Why? Wilkins answers this. Christians have always been seen as a threat to tyrants because they see God as being above government. They see absolutes that are above the laws of the land. Uh, They believe in a hereafter. You can destroy my body, but you can't destroy my soul. They cannot control and intimidate and silence Christians quite as easily as they can others. And so historically, they have always been targets. And uh, we've not received that kind of high-level persecution in America, but um, uh, we may be gearing up to that. It'll be interesting to see what Congress does as the court struck down the um, Freedom Restoration, what is it, Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Um, I'm hoping, there there is still hope, I'm very optimistic that the brakes can still be put on But you can see the kind of conflict that could come up and how our Congress needs to be very serious about about these troubles. Next step, according to Steve Wilkins, is to rewrite history. Verse 25 goes on to say, and shall intend to change times. Rome found it necessary, and this was not just in Israel, it was in other countries as well, found it necessary to destroy holidays that perpetuated a politically incorrect View of history. Now it was a correct view of history in Israel, but it was politically incorrect to hold to some of those uh, viewpoints in Rome. And they sought in other ways to control or impose a new understanding of the time. Uh, Wilkins, in his uh, tape on um, well, deals with teaching uh, history, just does a fabulous job, I think, of showing how the person who can control the history and can rewrite the history, can manipulate the people of that nation so much easier because there's not the anchor, there's not the uh, emotional resistance to change that could be there. So it's a very key thing they've always been involved in. And Wilkins documents how radically America has revised the history books, all of the history textbooks in our nation, radically revised. I've looked at some of the history books from 100 years ago or more compared to today. And it's almost like diametrically opposite viewpoints on some of those historical events. So the rewriting of history. Next step, according to Wilkins, is the changing of laws. And that was a strategy in Rome as well. Verse 25, he shall intend to change times and law. Now, there were some laws. Rome just left alone in Israel. There were other laws that had to be changed. Israel was a sore spot in Rome's side all through its history. No question about that. But Israel was a lot more Hellenized and a lot more Romanized than the average Jew was willing to admit. Remember the conflict between Christ and the Pharisees? Uh, he talked about them being slaves. He said, we've never been a slave to any man. And Christ indicated they were fooling themselves. They were slaves to Rome. And similarly, I think there can be no question about the fact that a revolution has happened in America. They're no longer rooted in the Bible. The laws of, our, of America are no longer rooted in the Bible. In fact, many times they are hostile Uh, to the Bible. John Whitehead of the Rutherford Institute uh, indicates we're not waiting for a revolution. The revolution has already happened in America. It's been complete, and Americans have not yet woken up to that fact. We need to be troubled over the state of affairs just as Daniel was. This section begins and ends with Daniel being troubled. Verse 28, this is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me. And my countenance changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Under Belshazzar, which was when this prophecy came, he was not able to have much influence. That changed under Cyrus. But what I want to admonish you to do is, with the position and the abilities that God has given you, to resist the kind of tyranny that is spoken of in this chapter. And since we're in the period of the, the kingdom, I think that this is possible. And perhaps you can discuss some of the points that we Uh, We're not able to get to. We're going to go on to chapter 8 next uh, week. But for now, I want you to leave you with the realization that God has called us in verse 22 to possess the kingdom. And verses 26 through 27 describe how we do it. It's both a negative and a positive ministry. Negative ministry here, it says, is taking away the dominions that the humanists have achieved taking it away. They did not get where they are in America overnight. This is something that they planned for, they strategized, they worked hard for, and we must be just as determined. Verse 27 says, They shall take away his dominion and consume and destroy it forever. The saints are the ones who take away that dominion from the beast. We need to be involved in taking back what the humanists have robbed. We need to be involved in destroying every high place that's been exalted "...against the knowledge of Christ, and bringing every thought into captivity to Christ." And that's the positive part of verse 27, "...teaching the nations to observe all things that Christ has entrusted to us." And it will happen one day, according to the Scriptures. Verse 27 says, "...then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms unto the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom." and all dominions shall serve and obey Him. We have a mandate from the Lord to conquer and to reconstruct. May we be involved in that mission. Amen.